Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you saying? Word up. That. Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline, and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication, a work of art, from Genesis to Revelation, from God's creation, to man's fall, to redemption, to consummation. His designs and structure, each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens, sturdy and fixed. Romans 11:36. Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and the so clever we behold his endeavors unfold The greatest, greatest story, story ever, ever told. told The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we gotta see The importance of biblical theology yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology.
our client is going to be with us. We have a great team looking at the imminent resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's been on the show before, and we've gone over a lot of the typical arguments that you need in this kind of issue. Um, <clears throat> I'm here. Everything before now is breaking up. Try talking. How about me? Can you hear me? I can hear you very well. Yep, I can hear you <clears throat> Yeah, you're pretty good now. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah, I was just just telling uh, people a little bit about you, and maybe you could you could give us a brief introduction. I know we've never met. I've just uh, been a guy that's read a lot of your articles, a lot of your stuff that you do on uh, Neon and Yes, I'm I'm sorry that was mostly broken up. Would you like me to call you back or do you want to try calling me? Yeah, tell you what. Why don't you go ahead and try calling back and then we'll see if okay. that's that. All right, I'll call you right back, Devin. All right, thank you. New year. Um, we have a lot uh, in store in the coming weeks to be done. Uh, we plan on actually we'll be having another debate uh, in January. Uh, coming probably one week I'm not really sure if it's going to be um, but we're going to have Shandy Guthrie and another gentleman from the uh, Yamaki show that's done several debates in the past very very sharp guy so we're looking forward to having him on and that debate will be in the month I'll put a, put a thing up on our Facebook page if you're not uh, on our Facebook page if you haven't liked our Facebook page, go to Theology Matters uh, Duluth on Facebook. Theology Matters Duluth on Facebook. You can see uh, we have a lot of shows. Uh, you're still breaking up. We should get you to uh, to uh, PM me your questions in Facebook, and then I'll answer them if you're hearing me okay. <laughs> I'm sorry about this. How did I become a Christian? Is that what you asked me? Yes, uh-huh. Okay. Um, well, I I was born in California, and I grew up probably a pretty typical California kid of the of the 50s, 60s, 70s. I was born in 55, and so uh, I was there for the, the hippie years and all. And I was probably unusually interested in spiritual things for a preteen and a teenager. I got involved in a... Um, uh, a non-Christian cult called Science of Mind, uh, also known as Religious Science. It was founded by Ernest Holmes, and um, it is sort of a cousin to Christian science. People are familiar with that. Actors Robert Young and Peggy Lee, the singer, was in uh, Religious Science. Um, let's see, Robert Schuller said he got his possibility thinking from Norman Vincent Peale, and Norman Vincent Peale said he got his positive thinking from Ernest Holmes, who founded the uh, the cult of religious science. Basically, it's a, a new thought religion that teaches that um, God is in all of us. We're all expressions of God, and it spiritualizes it. It takes um, esoteric interpretations of Scripture. It, it re redefines 
key biblical terms, like uh, Christ is, is not uh, the anointed one, it's not the Messiah, it's certainly not Jesus, but Christ is the principle of, of uh, sonship that's said to be in all human beings. So I got involved in that as a preteen and a young teen, um, and actually took half of the training course to become a, a minister in that religion. But then the Holy Spirit started moving on my heart when I was 16 and 17 and um, brought a heavy conviction of sin and, and basically uh, shattering to my worldview that brought me to conversion and to faith in Christ. No, you're you're like you're standing across a football field, and I'm hearing about every third word in a windstorm. How did you get to the How did I what? Okay, how did I get into being a pastor? Um. Well, the Lord saved me in February of 1973, and by the Holy Spirit bringing to me just the shattering realization that, that everything that I thought rested on myself, that I, I had created God in my image. I basically had a universe that was centered around me, and the Holy Spirit um, convicted me of sin in just a, an absolutely um, comprehensive way that brought me shattered and to my knees and crying out to him to show me how to know him on his own terms. So in February of, of 1973, I heard the gospel. I should say, well, I, I'd heard the gospel many times, of course, but this was the time that the Holy Spirit brought it across to me in power and in conviction. It was what we call the effectual call um, of regeneration. And uh, God opened my eyes and showed me my need of Christ. I heard Christ preached in Van Nuys in California, and um, just came running to Christ for salvation to be my Lord and Savior. And it was an upheaval of my whole way of looking at everything. It, that's reflected in, the, in my book, uh, The World Tilting Gospel. The gospel is not just a matter of adjusting a couple of opinions or a couple of viewpoints, but it is an absolute radical redoing of how we look at God, the universe, ourselves, others, things, everything. So on conversion, I was gripped with this... Um, need to know the word of God and a, a desire to do the word of God and a desire to make the word of God known. And in time, I came to see that that was a driving impulse that also would drive me to wanting to be a pastor, that uh, drove me to want to prepare myself and immerse myself in the word in such a way that I could teach it and preach it to others and help them see what I'd seen, help them grow in their Christian lives, help point them to Christ and, and uh, the way of walking in him. So basically I was saved in 73, and then later that same year I started learning New Testament Greek and uh, Hebrew the next year and basically began preparing for uh, pastoral ministry then, uh, like 39 years ago. You typed me a question in Facebook. If you'd like to type me a series of questions or interactions, I could just read those because I'm not even hearing you. How did I get into blogging? I, I think it was Hugh Hewitt, actually. Um, I listened to him on the way home from work, and he talked about this new thing, blogging. It was a way of communicating. And I'd been looking for 
effective ways of getting the word of God out. Um, and, yeah, I've been in, in chat groups, chat rooms, you know, discussion groups, mailing lists, various things where I've been like with Babylon Five viewers and and others, and in each each place where I was trying to bring the gospel as well there. And he talked about blogging, so I looked into it, and somebody I knew put me onto this guy named Phil Johnson who had this blog called Pyromania. And um, I, I'd heard of Phil, but I, I didn't really read him much. Um, so I went to Pyromaniac, and I just found that he was putting things so clearly and so well. He had such a clear view and such a, an excellent, um, accessible way to express things. I'd comment on his blog, and I'd blog on mine, and he'd, he'd comment on mine and kind of go back and forth. And so he, um, when he decided that, his blog was too much for just him to handle and he wanted to do a, a team blog. He invited uh, Frank Turk and me to join him on this team blog and I, I leaped at the opportunity. But before then, I'd had my own individual blog called Biblical Christianity. I had a webpage that's still up, uh, bibchr.com, the Biblical Christianity webpage. You might be interested. I got something there called um, Why I Am Still a Christian and How Can I Know God. Basically, the, the first one I mentioned is an apologetic attempt to, um, I'm a presuppositionist, and uh, I try to, I, I found that presuppositionists um, tend not to speak very evangelistically. They tend to talk to one another, at least that was the case when I wrote this. So I tried to write something addressed to unbelievers um, to reach out with a, uh, a presentation of why the Christian faith is uh, a necessity. So... Got into blogging, in short, you know, as a way of getting the word out. Oh, boy. You ask, how do I see the state of evangelicalism in America? Um, it's, it's grim. It's, it's depressing if you look at it and you don't look at the word and you don't look at God's promises. Um, <clears throat> looking at the word keeps my sanity because I, I look at the way I see things going and then I look at what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4 and Yep, we're right on schedule. Um, and the the same thing that provides the analysis also provides the prescription. I've really been – this is a passage of Scripture that is really huge to me. You just go from 2 Timothy 3:15 through, um, oh, let's say, 4, verse 7, where Paul is writing his last words to Timothy. And he says that the time's coming when people will not endure sound teaching but will have itching ears and uh, will accumulate teachers according to their own desires. Now, he's not talking about uh, worldlings. He's not talking about blatant unbelievers because they've never endured sound teaching. They've never had an ear for the truth. He's talking about people within the church. He's talking about professed believers. <clears throat> so he envisions a time when Timothy's going to look around and he's going to find that people don't really want to hear him preach the word. So, what should Timothy do? You know, should he revise his message? Should he revise his approach? Should he say, look, this isn't working. This isn't what people want. Let me find out what people want and, and try to, to, to bring that and see if I can also somehow make a connection between that and God's truth. But no, that's not what Paul says at all. In uh, verses 15 through 17 of chapter 3, he says that God's word in the Old Testament is sufficient to bring us to saving faith in Christ. And in verse 16, he says, um, uh, prospectively, that uh, the whole of Scripture is sufficient to train us fully to be men of God, to be servants of God. And so in chapter 4, he says, preach the word. He tells Timothy, preach the word. 
in in good season, in bad season, good weather, bad weather. So the analysis of the problem is that people, Paul says, the day will come and people just won't have an ear for God's truth. They'll have an itching desire for other things and they'll run run off after other things. Uh, dancing bears and seminars and entertainment and zip lines and pyrotechnics and all that. And Paul says, it doesn't matter what they do. Here's your job. You preach the word. And if that in itself wasn't sufficient, he starts it off by saying, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Uh, there it is. That is transcultural. That is something that will never change. It's it's not different in the 5th century or the 20th century. It's not different in North America, Africa, Australia. This is a, a, global, uh, a global prescription that is good for the entire church age. So um, what, what can be done to correct the problem is to remain faithful to God's word and God's calling because only that is transcendent, is transcultural, and has the imprint of heaven's authority. Um, then you ask... <clears throat> I'll interview myself. I, I haven't heard your voice well enough to do an imitation, so <laughs> I'm taking what you've given me in, in Facebook uh, private messaging here. How important is it for Christians to know theology and how to defend it? Well, I would say it's literally vital. Vital means a matter of life and death. You don't know Christ without knowing theology. There, there aren't two options. There isn't the option of not knowing theology or knowing theology. Theology, per se, simply means knowledge of God, study of God. Everybody has a knowledge of God. Uh, Paul says in Romans 1 that we all know God, but we all suppress that knowledge. And when a person repents and trusts in Christ, um, he's uh, he's moved by theology. And so um, one of the most important books I read as a young Christian was a book by Jake Gresham Machen called What is Faith? And he forever made the point to me that there is no such thing as undoctrinal Christianity. There, there simply is no such thing. It's not that it's not desirable. It's that there is no such thing. Uh, you ask anybody, even the anti-doctrinal supposed Christian, well, who's Jesus? And anything he says to answer that will be a theological answer. And so the question is not, do we do theology or not? The question is, do we do sound theology or do we do rotten theology? Do we do theology that accords with God's truth, or do, you, do we do theology that counters, that flies in the face of God's truth? So Jesus says uh, the mark of a disciple is that we continue in his word, his logos. And that word logos, that's a rich word. I mean, it, it does mean the unit of speech, but it also conveys the meaning that the unit of speech communicates. Jesus means we continue in his word, in his doctrine, in his teaching, John 8, 31 and 32. So he says, if you continue in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And Jesus says in John 15, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, his words are the vehicle of his indwellingness. Uh, the word of God is the means of God communicating his presence to us. And it's that word that teaches us theology. So I could rephrase your question. How important is it for a Christian to know God? Because you answered that question, and you answered the question, how important is it for Christians to know theology? So is it important to know God? Yeah, I think it's life and death. So is it important to know theology? Absolutely. Good theology, biblical theology. Um, you ask, any advice for young pastors or pastors in training? Absolutely. i got truckloads of advice, but let me try to um, 
to boil it down. Um, my material advice would be, oh boy, that's a really good question. It's hard to know where to start. It's a, it's a target-rich environment. Um, in terms of heart, I'm, I'm taken back to something that my the fellow who first taught me said. He used to say, if you could do anything else happily, do that. So that's kind of a bit of advice because being a pastor, being a faithful pastor is not easy. And it, it takes, um, I don't thereby mean to pat myself on the back. I just mean it's, it's a hard endeavor. It's a hard aim to take. And it takes all of you. So I, I, I taught in seminary some and I saw lots of people there who just should not be there. They just should not have been there. They could not have the heart. Of it. They, they wanted to find an easy way to have a nice big church and be popular. Now, that's not pastoral ministry. So pastoral ministry involves teaching the Word of God, and you've just got to face before you take your first class in seminary that the Word of God was not written in English. It was written in Hebrew. It was written in Greek few chapters in Aramaic. So if you want to be an authority on the word of God, and that's what a pastor is, you have got to make up your mind that you can be friends for life with Hebrew and Greek. Start now, end when you die. And, and that, that, that really is my heartfelt advice. I mean, don't think that there's different tracks for being a pastor. A pastor should immerse himself in the biblical text. And that, those texts, if, if you believe in verbal plenary inspiration, those texts were written in Hebrew and in Greek. So you want to teach the Word of God? Learn Hebrew, learn Greek. Don't think of it as an extra any more than you want a doctor to think of uh, basic anatomy as an extra. Um, that's not an extra. It's part of the job. It's part of the calling. Um, and also just um, since um, if you read First Timothy 3 and Titus 1 about the um, qualifications for a pastor and you read that and you you look to see, well, what's distinctive about being a pastor from being just a Christian man? And you realize nothing is distinctive from being a Christian man except for the ability to teach and to identify sound doctrine and false doctrine and to explain the difference, to, to preach the word, teach the word, identify a good doctrine, identify a rotten doctrine, and a weed um, are, are the distinguishing characters of a pastor. So that being the case, cultivate a Christian character. Don't think that in aiming to be a pastor, you're aiming to be anything other than a mature, exemplary Christian man who can preach, teach, and lead, and shepherd Christ's sheep. Um, <clears throat> you ask, for those who go and visit your church, what can they expect? Well, in terms of me, they expect to see a guy trying to do what I just said pastors should do. <laughs> but for our church here at Copperfield Bible Church, uh, I just I love our church. I've never been happier in my life. I love the people that I serve and that I serve with. Uh, they're dear people. It is so hard to find a church that uh, loves the Word of God and the teaching of the Word of God and loves people. And so often you see a church that is somewhat intellectual and doctrinally oriented and likes good Bible teaching and preaching but isn't very personal, you know, isn't very relational, isn't very warm. Or you'll find a church that is very relational, but the teaching is light and uh, peripheral and not main. That's not the case at Copperfield Bible Church. As I came and found it, when I came and candidated a couple of years ago, I was just overwhelmed with the fact that these people were hungry for the Word of God, and they loved each other, and they love visitors, they love people who come. They're very uh, accepting in a Christian way and uh, very loving and, and very um, very easy to get into. I mean, I, I would, you know, my, my wife and my 
certification of this church is uh, we'd go there even if I weren't the pastor. If we were living here doing something else, we'd go to that church. We love that church. So I'm looking to see if you have another question. Oh, I am delightful. You say thanks for your time. You'd love to have me back. I would love to come back. Well, I, I could mention my two books. I've got The World Tilting Gospel uh, from Kregel, which is a presentation of the fact that the gospel is not just a matter of changing your mind about whether Jesus is God's son or not, but it's an actual um, upheaval of worldview. It's a clash of worldview. That becoming a Christian is uh, a transformational thing. It's it's a paradigm shift. So that book basically starts at the start in terms of how to view the world, shows the gospel, goes through the major um, truths of the gospel, and also begins showing how those truths apply for Christian living. Um, biblical theology professors like David Murray and others have said that it's a biblical theology for the rest of us. It's very accessible, and yet there's a whole lot of content there. Also, God's Wisdom in Proverbs from Cress is uh, a series of studies in Proverbs. It's a book of how to read Proverbs, how to interpret it, what Proverbs does, and then also a number of studies on what Proverbs teaches about knowing God, about worshiping God, family, marriage, um, and, a, and a variety of issues. And also feel free to visit us at Pyromaniacs. We'd uh, love to have your listeners as our guests there as well. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm sorry I couldn't hear you, Devin, but I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk. God bless. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The word justified means that you and I stand before God acceptable, spotless, pure, and without sin. That God looks at us and says, there is no sin in that man. There is no sin in that woman. That he looks at us and we are now just in his sight. So all the blasphemy that we've done by choosing stuff over God, all the blasphemy that we've lived in by saying my way is better than God's, all the blatant sin of saying creation is better than God's is removed and God sees us as just. Much more than having now been justified by His blood. This is great news. Nothing about your effort in that text at all. Nothing about your might, your religious stamina, your morality, your cleaning yourself up. You have been justified by an act of God. Bottom line, you have not earned right standing in front of God by your effort or your cleaning up of your life. We have been made pure standing blameless in front of God, not because of any kind of religious or moral pursuit, but because Christ died. And in his death, he absorbs all of God's wrath for you and I. And that's why the Bible says that for the children of God, we are not appointed to suffer wrath. Because the wrath bestowed upon you and I was absorbed by Christ's death.
Hey, hey, are you there? It must not be forgotten that religious controversy is inevitable where living faith and definite truth dwells side by side with error and evil. And preachers may remember that controversial preaching is full of power and full of interest. This is to say that the Reformers did not maintain the status quo in the church. When they expounded the Scriptures, they rocked the boat. They created waves. And the safest way to have a nice little ministry is just preach certain portions of the Bible and overlook other portions. But if you start in chapter 1, verse 1, and your commitment is to preach through entire books of the Bible, verse by verse, and not neglect any doctrine that is set forth in the text, rest assured, controversy will result. Every true revival is born in controversy and leads to more controversy. That has been true, he said, ever since our Lord said that He did not come to bring peace upon the earth, but a sword. I would remind us all that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. And we must take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and the preaching of the Reformation that brought down the strongholds of the day was the preaching of the Word of God and it was controversial preaching. If you come back to the Bible and a resurgence in inerrancy, it will always lead to a resurgence of Reformed theology because Reformed theology is nothing more, nothing less than the sum and the substance of the pure teaching of the Word of God. If one desires not to have a controversial ministry, then don't preach the Bible. But if you do preach the Bible, you will preach the doctrines of grace. God will use it to the bestowing of blessing upon His church and upon His people, and it sets in right motion everything that is right in the church. The doctrines of grace purify our worship. It purifies our fellowship. It purifies our own spiritual lives. It sets in motion our ministries. It purifies our evangelism. It inflames our missions. This was part of the epicenter of the shock of the Reformation that was unleashed upon Europe and sent its earthquake effects across the Atlantic to reverberate here in the colonies of America. This is the preaching of the Reformation.
fact that this is a narrow gate requires repentance. It requires leaving your baggage behind. It requires leaving behind the love of sin and the love of the world and love of self. And Jesus said, if any man shall come after me, he must deny himself and take up a cross and follow after me. There is no way to come through this narrow gate except you strip down and strip away all self-sufficiency and all self-righteousness and you humble yourself and you come as a little child into the kingdom of heaven and it is a narrow gate whereby you can only come one at a time. You can't come in a group. You're going to have to peel off from the group. You're going to have to break from the pack. You're going to have to break even from your family and come one at a time to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is calling everyone under the sound of His invitation to leave where they are and to leave what they are and to come immediately to Him and to enter through the narrow gate. You need to know that the gospel is a command. And you will either live in obedience or disobedience to this Christ who is calling you to enter through the narrow gate. And to fail to respond to this gospel is to commit the greatest sin under heaven. It is to trample underfoot the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is to insult the Spirit of grace who would be convicting to say no to the gospel of Christ is to commit the greatest sin. Why do you refuse to come to Him that you might have life? It's not the signs and wonders. In this here chapter of John, Jesus had just done a bunch of signs and wonders and people didn't believe Him. Why? Because Jesus says the scriptures that you read, they testify about me. And Jesus claims we're too hard for people. Jesus claims basically, in essence, were, you think you can work your way there, you can't. You've sinned, you deserve God's wrath, you can't dig your way out of your hole. But I 